1: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week... Matthew Sweet on the Vietnam deserters who fought the CIA, the brainwashers and themselves in his book Operation Chaos. Matthew Sweet is the author of Inventing the Victorians, and Babylon and the West End Front, which you might remember we've discussed on a previous Little Atoms. He is a columnist for Art Quarterly a contributing editor for Newsweek International and presents the BBC radio programmes Free Thinking, Sound of Cinema and The Philosopher's Arms. He was series consultant on the Showtime drama Penny Dreadful and played a moth from the planet Vortis in the BBC2 drama An Adventure in Space and Time.
3: I was just passing and the light was on.
2: (laughs) And Matthew's latest book, Operation Chaos, the Vietnam deserters who fought the CIA, the brainwashers and themselves, is what we're talking about today. Matthew, welcome back to Little Atoms. I'm
3: very glad to be here. Tell me briefly what, the, what Operation Chaos is about. Well, Operation Chaos um, is about a group of Vietnam deserters who ended up in Stockholm at the end of the 60s and found themselves at the sharp end of the CIA's Operation Chaos, which was a project to, well, to put the new left and anti-war organisations under surveillance and maybe a little bit more.
2: And so you're also... A participant in this story. So I want to talk about how you first came across it.
3: Well I came to it by a strange and circuitous route really. I-, I wanted to write a complete and utter history of desertion and uh, interview number one was going to be mad Frankie Fraser who I went to see right at the end of his life. He told me about uh, being in the scrubs with Ivan Avello and how when Ivan Avello walked in um, all the uh, all the uh, cellmates started to sing wheel gather lilacs as he walked down the corridor. Um, but I soon saw that the weren't really going to be very many Second World War deserters around. And then I latched on to the weird story of British and American troops who went over the lines in North Korea and ended up um, because they were the only Caucasian people in the country, playing all the villains in the North Korean equivalent of James Bond in the seventies and into the eighties. But they were rather inaccessible. And in fact the last one of that group died just before Christmas. And then I latched on to the story of the Stockholm deserters. I knew nothing about this at all. I I knew that American deserters had gone to Canada and set up communities there. I knew that they'd been in London, but I had no idea that nearly a 1,000 of them had settled in Stockholm. And when I discovered that the leadership of their group had gone on a very, very strange path indeed, I had to follow them down it.
2: And obviously, as you said, Canada seems logical. And obviously draft, uh, draft dodgers would have, would have gone to Canada. We're talking here, obviously, a lot of cases, people that were actually in Vietnam. Why Sweden?
3: Sweden was the only non-communist country in Europe that would grant uh, deserters humanitarian asylum. You could go to Yugoslavia, but once you've gone to Yugoslavia, well, maybe there was no coming back from that. Maybe there was no coming back from Sweden either. But it was a kind of beacon uh, because of four deserters who deserted from the USS Intrepid in Japan in 1967 who were spirited away by a Japanese anti-war organisation called Beharon and found themselves smuggled into Russia on fishing boats and then used really as propaganda tools while they were in Moscow, um, taken to Lenin's tomb taken to a lot of circuses, they got very bored of circuses and encouraged to go on television and tell stories about their experiences that weren't all necessarily true quite a few of them described atrocities that probably never happened And then when they'd outlived their usefulness, they were put on a plane to Sweden, given a new suit. Um, In fact, the first four who went, who were known as the Intrepid Four because of the ship they deserted from, were put in suits that were so smart that when they came down the steps of the aeroplane at Orlando Airport in Stockholm, they looked like the Beatles. And once that story broke, then men all over the world knew that Sweden was a place that they could go. And of course,
2: you've just described them travelling through the USSR. This is, you know, the height of the Cold War. I mean, obviously it was illegal to desert, so they were going to face some sort of punishment anyway. But presumably a deserter that legged it to Canada was not going to face the same opprobrium at home that someone who had gone via this circuitous route via Moscow.
3: Absolutely not. No, the ones who went to Canada came largely from the States, obviously. And as you said, many of them were draft resistors rather than true deserters but you see these guys who came through uh, japan had all served and in fact some of them were in a rather fragile state psychologically i mean not just the ones in the book you know this is a sort of uh, this is one of these stories that won't stop and in fact i was in america last week and went to see a, a deserter whose story i knew about and who i would not been able to get in touch with but who got in touch with me once he heard the, the book was coming out a guy called ray sanseviero and uh, i went to see him in his house on long island and he was a guy who's really had the worst of both worlds. He got a Purple Heart at the Battle of Kaisan, the Siege of Kaisan, I should say really one of the bloodiest events of the Vietnam War. Um, All of those uh, American servicemen were under heavy bombardment, and he he was awarded this high honour for it. And then, whilst on R&R in Japan, took up with this uh, anti-war group, and I think really without thinking it through, and possibly being in, I mean, very probably being in a state of uh, post-traumatic shock, decided to take this ticket through the Soviet Union. And went to Sweden, was very unhappy in Sweden, and then went home, faced a court-martial, was sentenced to 12 months hard labour, and then propelled out into the world. Was given a presidential pardon in 1975, but then a couple of years later, a Republican uh, congressman or senator, I can't remember which now, managed to get a bill through that took away benefits from deserters, even people, you know, even somebody with a purple heart, even somebody who I think probably um, to most people would be considered to have paid their debt. And he's now living in very difficult circumstances. So it's still very live and and bloody, this story.
2: So you follow the, the journey of a group of six men who follow the path of the intrepid four, the Beatles. Tell me something about them and their, you know,
3: their journey. They lived underground for a little while, in Japan, a very varied group of men, um, Terry Whitmore, who again was uh, a, a serviceman who had seen action in Vietnam, um, the only African American of the group. Um, there was also somebody who had Korean background, who indeed ended up in North Korea, where he still is. Um, there was uh, Edwin Arnett, who was a rather strange, somnolent Man who talked about having seen atrocities, talked about uh, um, servicemen making necklaces of the ears of Vietnamese who they'd killed, but who actually turned out to have been a ship's cook who only saw violence done against potatoes, as far as I can gather. And the one who I got to know, uh, an army private called Mark Shapiro. Um, who, again, had seen action, um, who had seen people die, and wanted out of the war. And so they were—they took up with these anti-war activists and found themselves shunted around Japan, living in um, the spare bedrooms of academics and teachers and people who were sympathetic to the cause. And, I mean, he said that as soon as he got in the, the room and with the others gathered together, that uh, most of them were quite crazy. And so he's then on this boat... Uh, he's then taken on a long tour of the Soviet Union and subjected you know interviewed by Yuri Andropov and subjected to a subtle kind of of influence i think that he described as brainwashing i mean in a slightly joking way but i think That experience did change him. And then they were out the other end and into Sweden, a long, long way from home, trying to build new lives themselves, rather vulnerable, I think, in some cases in a state of trauma, and so susceptible to other influences um, in this country um, of which they knew little, not all of whom had their best interests at heart.
2: And so what did they find in Sweden?
3: Well, what they found was a Swedish public who treated them rather like rock stars, a government who were very happy to see them and enshrine them as a symbol of their opposition to the Vietnam War. This is the Social Democrat government in Sweden whose uh, rising leader, Olaf Palmer, um, will become really the only Western leader to take a very strong authoritative stand against the Vietnam War. And they're also subject to the interests of the Swedish uh, Secret Service, um, who have undercover men in the anti-war community who are keeping them under tabs. And there's also an organisation called the American Deserters Committee, founded as a kind of welfare organisation. But something else... Something other than that. Its leader, a man called Michael Vale, is a radical, a revolutionary, who wants to build this group of men into a kind of revolutionary army in order to take the war home back to the States. And Michael Vale's not a deserter. Michael Vale's not a deserter. Michael Vale is an international man of mystery who is now part of my life. In fact, I heard from him this very morning. We were, were arranging to have our first meeting since uh, this book was published but yes an older guy in his 40s a man with a head full of of Trotskyism and Marxism and radical politics a great. Uh, A man really modelling his life around Trotsky, having read uh, Isaac Deutscher's three-volume biography, and also trying to build a radical network across the whole of Europe, a man with contacts in this country and in Paris, um, across the world, really. Um, And a man very much interested in building for this revolutionary moment and preparing these young men particularly for it, which meant that they were put through a very rough psychological process to make them fit for this new world. He's also someone, as you said, people
2: are suspicious of him. He seems to have mysterious income streams as well.
3: Yes, nobody quite knows where he gets his money from. He says it 's from translation, and in fact, you know, I checked all this out. He was translating madly during this period, but uh, again, questions were raised about that because he was translating from uh, he was keeping an eye on what was going on in the Soviet Union in chemistry in psychology and there's one client uh, very keen to know about developments in this area, and that 's the the CIA and wider American defense and intelligence interests who want to know if there's espionage going on in those areas. So, to be a translator of such texts is not a sort of neutral activity. And he was arrested once in Russia as well. But finding out the details of Michael Vail's life was hard. And he was a much mythologized figure. When I was looking around and what had been written about him before and what had been written about the desertist groups, he was referred to as the Rasputin of this group, a butcher who would take men apart. And it took me a long time to find him. But eventually I did find him. And he emailed back to me almost instantly and said, yes, I'll meet you, but I'm in Odessa. And this was when it was all kicking off in Odessa. And then a couple of weeks later, I got another email out of the blue saying, oh, I'm in London. I'll meet you. And I was Please, but also a little scared about this because i'd I'd heard about this reputation, and I'd sort of had some sense of the of the wreckage that he'd left behind him, and I asked him to come and have lunch at the BBC where I work um but he said no, Is LinkedIn green, last bench on the right, I'll be holding something red, so this seemed to me to be a, if if there was a, if I had any suspicions that he was an operative of some sort, these were only enhanced but I've now been he's now been part of my life for uh, for 3 or more than 3 years now and I he's still a total enigma to me. He's a crumpled man, now in his 80s, wandering the world. He won't go back to the states. He says he definitely won't do that, but he's either in Vietnam or in the Philippines or somewhere on one of Syria's borders. He's still he's like a figure from Conrad almost. And we meet in cafes and restaurants in London and every time we meet I try and get to the bottom of who he is and what he is and he's, he and I have been playing this game now for a very long time.
0: I'm Alex Cox
3: and this is Little Atoms a radio show about ideas and culture.
2: You've mentioned there how you managed to track down Michael Vale, but I wanted to pause and just talk more generally about how you tracked down some of these people in the book.
3: It was, it was hard um, but essentially the my method was to look at uh, the news reports of who had been granted humanitarian asylum in Sweden and then go looking for those names in the phone book in the on the electoral register uh, to try and locate those men um, it's marvelous in sweden everybody everybody's in the phone book it's very easy to find anybody in sweden in america not quite so easy.
2: And some of these people are still living in Sweden.
3: Oh yes yeah. indeed many of them um, settled down very happily in Sweden, uh, started families, did valuable work, became teachers, academics, ran kindergartens there was a, um, a really nice guy called Steve Kinneman who uh, who is the father of uh, two of Sweden's leading actors, one of whom is Joel Kinnaman, who you, know, you will now see in lots of Hollywood movies like Robocop and uh, Suicide Squad. You know uh, what, weirdly only... that occurred to me when I saw that's his it. name
2: and I didn't, didn't bother looking it up. So yeah. that's great that you've confirmed that.
3: But his father, Steve, has this most amazing story about uh, going deserting um, in Laos, living underground there, travelling into Sweden on a false passport with the authorities, both the American military authorities and the authorities in Laos, on his tail. It's an amazing story. I mean, I I, I hope he's going to write a memoir about his experiences because they don't. There were so many of these stories that I had to be quite choosy about uh, who to include because there's a. This is a whole lost world, I think. It will be a good
2: opportunity to bring in Operation Chaos as well. Now let's let's bring in. So what's going on? So these guys, you've mentioned the American Deserters Committee. That's there. People are coming over, settling in Stockholm and Malmö and where have you. And then at the same time, over in America, the CIA are starting to get that start to get their act together in terms of, as you said, this is not just looking at these deserters, but they want to undermine the Black Panthers, the anti-war movement in America. So Operation Chaos comes about. Tell me something about that.
3: Well. President Johnson is the the true author of Operation Chaos. He was convinced that uh, some outside force was radicalising American youth, was turning them against their parents, was impelling them to join these radical organisations. And he was sure there was Russian money in it somewhere. So he uh, prevailed upon the CIA to set up some kind of mechanism to investigate this. And they created Operation Chaos, a vast surveillance operation, Um, 9,994 names. Were, had files opened on them by chaos. Uh, they were stored in a computer with the rather exciting name of Hydra in a vault within the basement of the CIA headquarters at Langley. And as you say, they were interested in the Panthers, um, they were interested in the anti-war movement, um, in Puerto Rican socialists, and they were interested in the deserters because the deserters had done something very eye-catching. they had established this network through the Soviet Union. they Established a route from Japan that the whole grouping of intelligence services in America were determined to to break and did in fact. And um, of course, the CIA are obliged to destroy that material. To gather it at all was against their own charter because they're not meant to investigate American citizens wherever they wherever they happen to be, um, even if they're if they're doing things uh, abroad. And it also put other agencies to use as well. So even though when you talk to... I talked to the only officer who worked on chaos who has ever gone on the record about it, Frank Rafalco, who looked after the Black Panthers. And he gave a very minimalist account of it and described it as purely an information-gathering service. But he said that the other agencies were a little more active. And so it became a kind of argument about cause and effect. Chaos is at the heart of all of this. Chaos is providing the energy for other operatives who belong to other intelligence services to do its work. And indeed, the tiny bits of paperwork that have survived, totally by accident, in other people's archives, show the flow of information back from Sweden, back from Paris, back from Japan to Langley.
2: And even if they weren't actively involved with infiltrating these groups, the very idea that they might starts to sow seeds of paranoia within these various groups...
3: They were fragile psychologically anyway. They knew there were people among them. There were people among them. And we can say that categorically. The Swedes had people among them. They had eyes among them. We know from the surviving files that there were people they trusted who were reporting back on them to Langley. I can't name those people, though I think there's a damn good chance that some of the people who are in this story, even ones I might have talked to, were... um, one of them was the mole, or maybe more than one of them was the mole within this group. There was somebody in there, an inside, an inside man, and because of this, it put them in in the zone of paranoia. And actually, the leadership of the American Deserters Committee rather exploited that paranoia to keep the group cohesive, to keep it pure politically, I think, and to uh, to also demonstrate something about its own importance. So it would it would. You know, it, they talked about getting mysterious phone calls in the middle of the night, invitations for deserters to to come and meet strange figures in uh, in out of the way locations. Uh, people back home in the States started to receive letters apparently from the American Deserters Committee saying it was Americans who had lost kids in the Vietnam War saying, well, you know, ours is the the, the right cause. Why not join us? So um, there was all kinds of weirdness going on that was very hard to interpret for those men stuck in the middle of it all.
2: And of course, as well as that, atmosphere of paranoia. Anybody that has the vaguest acquaintance with left-wing groups will know that when you get a bunch of people together in a and if we leftist ideas, eventually there will be splits. And those splits will split again and split again and split again. So tell us what happens to the American Deserters Committee?
3: Well, the American Deserters Committee, as you say, like a lot of uh, comparable organisations, um, began to boil away into fractions. And it wasn't, you know, it it didn't disappear instantly. But the more radical ones tried to form alliances, did form alliances with students for a democratic society, with the weathermen. Um, they went off around Europe meeting the Weathermen in, in Budapest. Uh, uh, some of them went to a communist youth festival in Bulgaria where they were under surveillance. And, uh, but gradually, a, a radical hard center emerged. And when the draft ended, that radical hard center found itself slightly adrift and left Sweden, partly left Sweden, and joined a much more radical political ecosystem in Germany. And that's when things started to get very strange indeed when they came into the orbit of a group of American radicals who put them on a very bizarre path.
0: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey.
2: Listen to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Matthew Sweet. We're talking about his book Operation Chaos, the Vietnam deserters who fought the CIA, the brainwashers, and themselves. And Matthew, you've just mentioned that our heroes are now coming into the orbit of a, a much more radical group. The other thing that we should say at this point, you mentioned just then that the draft is over, but at this point the Vietnam War itself... Is finishing. And one would think that the story that's based around a group of Vietnam deserters might be over. It very much is not. In fact, some of the madness is only just beginning. And so introduce us to this group, which is called the National Caucus of Labour Committee.
3: Sounds reassuringly boring. It does. Doesn't it? It sounds like a fringe group from the TUC And in a way, it began as a fairly ordinary early 70s radical Trotskyist revolutionary organisation. There were plenty of them around, plenty in this country, plenty in America. And indeed, in looking at the membership lists and who who was subscribing to their literature um, in the very early 70s, I found a Mr. B. Sanders of Vermont. So not really the lunatic fringe at this stage. But they were an energetic Marxist group based in New York, they had ambitious ideas, and they had a very charismatic leader. Now, this is a man who was once a kind of um, a running gag in American politics and has now faded into obscurity, but is still alive at the age of 95 in Germany, a man who uh, who is probably now a joke on The Simpsons that requires a footnote. There's an episode of The Simpsons where Homer gets uh, transported aboard an alien spaceship, where uh, a program is going on where the aliens are replacing politicians with, um, you know, simulacra, and Homer exclaims, "Oh my God, Lyndon LaRouche was right!" And uh, if Lyndon LaRouche sounds like a, a drag act. To you, then you're probably too young to remember his uh, him as a perennial presidential candidate, a crackpot conspiracy theorist um, who believes, among many other things, that uh, the Queen of England secretly runs the international drugs trade. But early in the 70s, he was seen as a Charismatic figure. He'd been involved in the Columbia strike at Columbia University in 1968, where he'd lectured students on the lawn about Rosa Luxemburg, and he was a, a man to watch. And the the group of deserters who were in a way marooned in Germany, not really knowing what to do with themselves. Saw him as their potential savior. I think he was a radical, an energetic radical group that they could join up with, and that's what they did. Some of them stayed in Sweden to be his uh, uh to man his outpost there, and some of them came back to America, um, some using false passports in order to join up with him. But because they were an increasingly paranoid group. The deserters soon fell under suspicion because Lyndon LaRouche believed that the CIA were about to take over America. They were about to do this on behalf of Nelson Rockefeller, a one-time vice president, rather benign kind of figure, but he believed that Rockefeller was going to transform America into a vast labour camp. And his alternative plan was that his organization, the National Caucus of Labor Committees, would be to America what the Bolsheviks were to Russia in 1917. They would use their training as revolutionaries to seize power, seize the means of production, and by the end of the 70s they were going to be establishing Marxism on Mars. And they would do this partly through physical means because they all trained in martial arts. They were going to do this with the use of nunchucks in a kind of enter the dragonish kind of way and let me just stop you there yes because, do because <laughs>
2: because okay all of that sounds like ridiculous like you've just made this nonsense on, i've asked you to come up with some crazy conspiracy theory and you have just made it up off you, off the top mm-hmm. of your head but this actually happens in that this group tries to sort of take over or remove other left-wing groups in america literally by
3: fighting going them, to meetings and fighting, fighting yeah. yeah i mean this is not i mean really we've not this isn't the weird part of the story we're talking about here because what they wanted to do was achieve left hegemony in america they were going to beat up the communists and that really meant like attacking students attacking old ladies in tennis shoes with uh, knuckle dusters with um with bits of wood and um, this was known as operation mop up Those members who didn't want to participate in it were dismissed as the ladies' auxiliary. But they went on a kind of war against the other um, fractions of the American left, which led many to suspect that they were also a CIA operation um, in order to kind of neuter and cause disarray and dismay on the left in America. And the deserters got caught up in this and became part of it. And the deserters themselves, as the organisation became more and more paranoid, fell under suspicion and began to be perceived as a kind of enemy within.
2: And we talked about the deserters in the first part, and we talked about Michael Vale. So he's this character that had already introduced a small coterie of of the deserters into this sort of, I mean, we can call it brainwashing. But of course, what now happens is, as I mentioned, Michael's... He's sort of primed these people to be taken on by this cult. Accidentally, I guess.
3: Yes, it was an accident. It was an unintended consequence. Michael thought he was building a kind of revolutionary army. And now he sees that he's softened up these boys for a takeover by the much more sinister and um, dangerous force of Lyndon LaRouche. And they, some of them were trapped in his orbit for decades. There is one. The leader of the American Deserters Committee, a man called Bill Jones, is still a lieutenant of Lyndon LaRouche, even now, and is trapped in this dreadful, paranoid cult. And because the deserters were an outside body and because LaRouche was deeply suspicious of Michael and saw him as a rival, the deserters began to be perceived as literally an army of infiltrators implanted in the body of the National Caucus of Labour Committees, men who Michael was supposed to have worked upon in something LaRouche called the Brainwashing Institutes of Sweden. He literally believed that the deserters had been programmed like IBM computers and that they'd been programmed to assassinate him. So... I'm not going to call them the National Caucus anymore. We'll just call them
2: LaRouche. LaRouche's people. LaRoucheans. LaRoucheans. So, how do, let's talk about how they actually operated then in terms of, you know, their version of the ego stripping. So, there's a, there's this, you meet this lovely old couple, Chris and
3: Carol White. Introduce us to them first of all and then tell us what their part of this story was. Chris and Carol are, yeah, if you. You met them today, you would consider them a... a, They're like a pair of retired academics, almost. But they lived at the heart of this story, and Chris was its principal victim... Chris was... Um, at, th- at that point, there was an outpost of the Larusians in London. And this is the same moment that produces the Angry Brigade and uh, organisations like that. In fact, they knew people in that organisation and who they complained about them knocking on the door of their flat in Collindale you know, hoping for a free dinner and pretending they were out. They were part of this radical ecology in London. At the end of 1973, they had their Christmas conference... And they had that at the Conway Hall in London, a venue that some listeners to this programme may know, may have visited. And a call came in from New York saying there's an infiltrator in the group. I want you to find who that infiltrator is and, uh, and bring that intelligence back to New York. Now, the finger of um, suspicion could have pointed anywhere, but it pointed to an ex-deserter called Cliff Gaddy who was a man who was part of that core unit of the American Deserters Committee. And in Chris and Carol's bedroom in Collindale, a process began where they tried to deprogram him. They tried to make him admit that he was the man within, um, was this kind of programmed assassin, even though he might not have known this consciously. And nothing was revealed. But in that process, something happened to Chris. Chris sort of drove himself over the edge, I think. And so he found himself on a plane back to New York, walking into LaRouche's apartment in Manhattan and saying, I've come here to kill you announcing that he was the programmed assassin. So all of these people are living out a story that essentially is a version of the Manchurian Mm -hmm. candidate, only they're really doing it. Chris is confined in a series of apartments in New York. They're shining lights in his eyes. They are keeping him awake. And by the end of a few days of this, he is convinced that all of this is true and that LaRouche has saved him from um, this, uh, th- this fate. But the madness spreads over their um, conference that they're having in New York. So people are interrogating other People are confessing that they too have been, uh, had their minds programmed in the brainwashing institutes of Sweden. Um, people are turning against each other. And um, LaRouche um, calls this, this conference where he invites all of the press and says, look, there are people in this room who are programmed to kill if you've got any questions for me, write them down on a piece of paper because you may say the trigger word and then the shooting may start.
2: I'm Jonathan Meads and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture.
3: A lot of these people,
2: I mean, obviously not all of uh, the LaRouchians came from the deserter groups. We're talking about a core of them here. And obviously, you know, uh, deserters have come from the army. A lot of those guys would have just been poor working-class American boys that have been drafted into the army. But a lot of these people are extremely bright, educated people. Gaddy had been to Princeton.
3: What was the attraction of this for these sort of people? That's a hard question to answer. I can answer that in two different ways. Some of them were academics and um, scholars, uh, former academics and scholars, because once you had been identified by LaRouche, you tended to leave whatever institution you were at in order to devote yourself to a radical life. These were clever young people who got caught up in this radical organisation, were sleep deprived, a lot of them and working for what they thought was this higher cause. They had this big office in Manhattan with telexes and uh you know they would ring people up and uh, uh, and pretend to be journalists and get intelligence and they were they were quite a serious operation. But some of those people were not what they seemed. Some of those people I think were infiltrators of some kind. And it's very hard to to tease out what the motivations of of some of those people were but most of them were committed to the idea of revolution and had got caught up in the in the ethos of the Larouche group and had come and had submitted to his will i think so that by the time that they're all signing up to the idea that there are manchurian candidates within their group primed to kill many of them have already crossed a kind of boundary and those who have have kept to their senses don't go over there with him and leave at that point and at that point this this organization transforms from um you know a fairly regular part of the radical ecology of new york into a kind of manichaean cult
2: i want to bring us back to operation chaos i.e the cia but before we do that delarusians perhaps not that coincidentally because it is a common word it is an obvious word also have an operation chaos
3: Yes, indeed, yes. Well, they think that Operation – this is a – this is – I think this must be coincidence because somehow they produce this this phrase from nowhere, really. And the thing is, once the real chaos has been revealed – They then join all those dots as conspiracy theorists do. And because one of them came up with this, because it's too obvious. The thing about Operation Chaos, it's the most blindingly obvious name you could give to such an operation. The CIA say, oh, we just picked it out the code book. Uh, Really, you shouldn't draw any inference uh, from the name of of an operation um, as to its function, which is pretty logical, isn't it? Because you don't want to reveal what it is. Um, But unfortunately, Operation Chaos turned out to be marvellously descriptive, too descriptive for its own good. And so when the journalist uh, uh, Cy Hirsch detected its presence uh, sort of around the Watergate uh, period, um, 1974, and the, uh, I- its mechanisms slowly began to be revealed to the public, then the LaRouchians thought, well, this was the one that was mounted against us. And so it all got absorbed into their narrative, as anything and everything does. So you said then it's about one well, about 1974 when the the
2: news that the CIA had this thing called Operation Chaos starts to sort of get out to the public. And again, obviously, we've been taking some time to to poke fun at the Larusians and their their crazy schemes. But we could also look at this whole period of time of those, you know, the CIA MK Ultra and and Operation Chaos as their own Watergate, of course, as their own sort of weird psychedelic. Breakdown, down,
3: couldn't uh, we? Absolutely, and in one of the one of the ideas that seems strongest to me is that the the CIA and the organisations that they were pursuing began to kind of mirror each mm-hmm. other. I mean, uh, this is uh, Richard Helms, a senior figure at the CIA, used this phrase: "a wilderness of mirrors," uh, one drawn from T. S. Eliot, and you can really see that at work. I think partly because the people involved uh, in the CIA were were literary people. They liked metaphor. They liked imagery. They liked modernism, actually. And so there is, in a way, this strange process by which both the CIA and, and the LaRouchians are producing this kind of cacophonous performance art, almost. There's something about that of it. And they're going off together producing these these weird systems, these these processes, that all seem part of the same cultural moment, the same madness. Bringing us towards the present day, we we're talking about the 70s here, going into the
2: 1980s, you've mentioned um, Lyndon LaRouche's various, I think eight, as it stands, attempts to uh, to become elected president. You know, he's
3: not dead yet, he may
2: be back. Well, you know, stranger things have happened, eh, Mr Donald Trump? I want to talk about an offshoot of the LaRussians over here in Europe again, the European Workers' Party.
3: Who were they? The European Workers' Party uh, were a tiny, tiny political party in Sweden. And we shouldn't put them in the past tense because they are still contesting elections. Not that you would really notice. They usually poll um, fewer votes than Donald Duck, which is a name that people write in if they want to, uh, I think, uh, show their contempt for the for the system. But they are represented uh, during election time in Sweden. Um, the tradition is that the political parties set up a little hut in one of the squares there. And the European Workers' Party are Represented and they were a, they're baffling you know talk to Swedes of a certain age, and they 'll say, "Oh my yes, I remember those people. They were Larusians, there were deserters involved with that group, and they existed partly as a kind of disruptive force, which was another reason why many on the Swedish left said, these can't be what they seem these people they must be." The representatives of some intelligence service because all they do is make trouble on the left. They cause disunity on the left. So they would go to things like, um, they would go to meetings and they would start shouting and causing chaos. Uh, In some cases they even did something, uh, a tactic that would be rather familiar to those who have seen Lars von Trier's film, The Idiots in that they feigned a learning disability in order to create sort of awkwardness and embarrassment and shouting. They were unclassifiably peculiar and their policies were largely about uh, development, nuclear development. Again, not not something that the Swedes were very enthusiastic about. So they were kind of this weird pro-nuclear minuscule party who did nothing really but make noise and produced the most vile and vicious literature about the Prime Minister Olaf Palmer um, that you could imagine depicting him as an axe murderer, depicting him as, as an Iranian ayatollah. Uh, gruesome, nasty, reprehensible stuff. So this
2: is what we're talking about here really is what seems like a slightly more sinister version of the monster-raving Looney party, except anybody that's familiar with the story of Olaf Palm will know that he was assassinated. Mm. They might have a role in that.
3: Well, when Palmer was assassinated, certainly the European Workers' Party were in the frame, because they had produced this literature about him, um, the, a suspect who was taken into custody, a man called Victor Gunnarsson, um, he was associated with the party, he had lit their literature in his apartment, and two uh, leading members of the of the European Workers' Party were mentioned by many members of the public who uh, phoned in to the detectives saying, well, I think you ought to investigate these people. Um, and I'm not making any accusations against those two people. Uh, the uh, the leader of the party, a woman called Shastan Gaddy, and uh, her husband, an ex-deserter called Clifford Gaddy. But uh, that caused them, I think, a measure of trouble, if I can put it like that, the assassination of Olaf Palmer.
2: You mentioned that their interest in, in nuclear power a moment ago, and it just reminded me that I wanted to mention, I think we should mention, one of uh, Lyndon LaRouche's perhaps possible successes, which is his role, not that anything comes of it, but his role in Star Wars, the Strategic Defence Initiative.
3: Yes, it's rather hard to determine what that was. Uh, he now claims that he was the um, the father of the project, Almost. But certainly, um, the LaRusians had, at various moments in their history, managed to present themselves as sufficiently respectable to build relationships with some quite impressive people, figures within the CIA. They were close at one point to the Reagan transition team. Um, LaRouche and one of his uh, lieutenants, a former deserter called Warren Hammerman, met with the transition team uh, before Reagan, as Reagan was coming into office. And LaRouche, um, yeah, LaRouche founded a magazine that was uh, one of its purposes was to was to push the idea of SDI. He would always call it SDI because he disapproved of science fiction and would never use the phrase "Star Wars" because he thought science fiction was a, a British conspiracy invented by H.G. Wells to, to um, demoralise the world. And um, for a time, the Larusians were used as a kind of conduit to talk to the Russians because they had connections in Russia as well uh, with the Soviets. And LaRussians met with um, with Soviet generals and uh, and other figures associated with the, the USSR. This was a brief period, but it's one it's one that is i mean it seems absolutely extraordinary that such a thing could happen.
2: Where are some of these people now so you you mentioned that you've still regularly have contact with Michael Vail. I wanted to talk about some of the other deserters that you talk yeah. about, not the Larusians necessarily, but some of the deserters yeah. that you you talked about throughout the book. Some of them have also taken a rather a rather long political journey
3: yes um they are these men are a part of my life now. Really, they've been very, very generous with their with their time. They've told me things that I think you know. Perhaps nobody asked about for a for a long time, but um, they were under no um, obligation to tell me anything, and they told me all kinds of things. Things that even their families might not know. So, you know, I'm deeply grateful to all of them, even, though, even the ones that really I can't say I trust completely because some of them are unusual, uh, troubled, hard to read. But uh, in a way, most of the journeys have been strangely circular. One of the things that uh, I really thought was that, that people have arrived at the point of departure. The poor ones have stayed poor, the rich ones have stayed rich. So many of them have gone on all kinds of different paths. I went to stay with a deserter called Chuck Onan um, in uh, in Eugene, Oregon. Um, and he's now a sort of um, proponent of the medicinal use of cannabis. And this is also a theological idea for him. He runs a kind of cannabis church in Oregon. And a man who, again, was, when I met him, was living in very difficult circumstances and was uh, a great fan of the alt-right. I had to watch a lot of Milo videos with him. But also I could sort of see the way he lives impressing me, very strongly up- upon me. We used to take a walk. When I went to see him, we took this walk in a field by the side of his house to to go to the mall and have lunch. And there were these homeless guys camped out there in folding chairs and they had tents there, but every day they would set up these folding chairs and just look at the sun. And it was like something from the Grapes of Wrath. And and every time we passed them, Chuck would nod politely to them and they would nod to us. They would be sitting there with their, you know, the bottles of some kind of indescribable alcohol. And there seemed to be in that exchange between them something that spoke a lot to me about America now and about how those people who feel very marginalised and left out, which may partly explain why Donald Trump is president.
2: You mentioned, obviously, we've talked about the European Workers' Party yeah. and Cliff Gaddy, who was one of the leaders of that party, yeah. He he's moved on
3: somewhat. Cliff Gaddy is one of the most mysterious people in this story. He wouldn't give me an interview. Uh, He wouldn't even reply to any of the letters I sent to him. He was, until last year, um, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, one of the most respected people in the world, if you want to know about the mind of Vladimir Putin. He, together with a British academic called Fiona Hill, wrote a book called Mr Putin, Operative in the Kremlin. This is the book that everybody in intelligence, in diplomacy, in politics... Reads to understand what's going on inside Putin's head, and I made many attempts to contact him, and he wouldn't. Talk. Well, I don't know. He just didn't reply to me. There was just all there was was silence. And in January, he left his job at the Brookings very suddenly and unexpectedly. And people who I spoke to who worked there didn't know why he'd gone. But again, there is a sort of there is a sort of path into modern political America that I don't really know how to how to read. But I can tell you that um, Cliff's writing partner, Fiona Hill, to whom he was a kind of mentor, is now Trump's senior advisor on Russia. She's on the National Security Council. And so there is this very unexpected line between Lyndon LaRouche, um, a bizarre and very obnoxious political cult in Sweden, um, the assassination of Olaf Palmer, and a man who who has shaped indirectly or we perhaps hope is shaping indirectly um trump's policy on russia and that may be just like one of those lines of dots that that really doesn't amount to anything but it is a i would love to hear to hear cliff's account of himself because to me he's a complete enigma as i told him when I went to a gig he was playing in a bar called Gypsy Sally's in Washington, D.C., where he was playing cello in a folk band. And at the bar, I did ask him. I introduced myself and I said, Cliff, were you a real deserter or were you something else?
2: One more question. And you've mentioned the extent to which a number of the people in this book have become figures in your life now. Mm. I just wanted to talk about what this, what research in this book and immersing yourself in this world for a period of time
3: did for your own state of mind, Matthew? I don't know if it's had a very good effect on me, really, because to enter the paranoid zone, you have to kind of take up the paranoia of the people who live there. And I know that there was one moment when I was on a flight to New York that was much delayed. So I arrived at two o'clock in the morning and we were kept waiting on the tarmac for an hour and I missed my connecting flight, so I had to to book a hotel room near the airport. I got into the shuttle bus. This is about four o'clock in the morning now. The bus crashed, and for a reason I can't tell you now, I agreed to help the driver unpeel the side of the bus from the railings into which he'd crashed. And so I I was there in this totally dazed condition, doing this very stupid and foolhardy thing eventually got into the hotel room and really felt that i was in a place psychologically where i didn't want to be i can remember looking at the hotel bathroom and you know the chunkiness of an american hotel bathroom the thickness of the tiles the bigness of the taps i just had a a vision of of somebody coming <laughs> into the room and quietly disp- and noisily actually disposing of me. So, I know there are moments where I may have gone a bit mad actually writing this story, but I think I think everything's okay now. I think I'm outside. I've come to the other side of it. But there is, I fully acknowledge a bit of that madness in this book.
2: So, I've been talking to Matthew Sweet. We've been talking about Operation Chaos, the Vietnam deserters who fought the CIA, the brainwashers and themselves. It's out now from Picador. Matthew, thank you so much for coming in and talking about it.
3: Thank you. And please burn this now. Burn it. <laughs> You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can
1: find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at LittleAtoms.
0: If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.